0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. So I'm so glad to get to join you this summer as you're getting through this sermon series on the book of Hebrews. Do you know when I was a freshman at Wheaton College, which is a very... um, Strong Christian college, Evangelical Christian college. When you were a freshman in the dorms, or really any time we had some kind of get-together with people who didn't know each other, our icebreakers were so distinctively Christian that we would be asked, what is your favorite book of the Bible? And I always came under a certain amount of stress because people would look at me Like, I was crazy because I didn't say Romans Um, when I was, um, it changes a lot, but at that time in my life, my favorite book of the Bible was Hebrews. Um, So I'm glad to be able to love Hebrews in the midst of a community that can really appreciate that. (laughs) So again, the book of Hebrews, where we are right now in chapter 7, if you recall the big picture message of this whole letter, is that Jesus is the best. Jesus is better than all sorts of other different aspects of the Jewish religion. Jesus is greater than the prophets. We hear in just the first couple of verses of the whole book, he is more powerful than angels. Jesus is more worthy than Moses, the greatest prophet. And Jesus, of course, is a better high priest than Aaron and his descendants, and so we see in our passage for today that the anonymous author of this letter launches into a very particular argument. As a way of zeroing in on Jesus as our great high priest, he dusts off an obscure person from Genesis. Um, if his hearers were stuck returning to the worship of the old sacrificial system like a wheel spinning in place, then I would say that Melchizedek is like a cog thrown at the wheel to propel it on a different trajectory. Uh, I think about this because whenever we go to Cape Cod, it, it, you have to have a certain pass or whatever, but I don't have it right now, and I don't have a four wheel drive vehicle. But in, in past times, when I did own a Jeep, you were allowed to drive the Jeep on the beach if you had certain things. You had to get tested, and you had to have certain things in the back of your car. And I was always curious to learn that one of the things you had to have in the back of your car was um, yes, you had to have a certain amount of rope, and you had to have a hitch, but you also had to have a plank of wood. A big, heavy plank of wood, and the reason for that was that if or when you got stuck in the sand and your wheels were spinning around, anybody know this? You stick the plank under the wheel, I don't understand the physics of it, but I know that it works. You stick the plank under the wheel and it helps the wheel get a leg up, get some traction, and get up and out of the sand. Well, Melchizedek here is the wooden plank shoved under a spinning Jeep wheel to get it unstuck. Melchizedek is mentioned only twice in the Old Testament. First in Genesis 14, where we learn that Abraham met him as he was returning from a victorious battle between two against nine other kings. And then Abraham tithes. Abraham tithes a tenth of the spoils to this mysterious man who's called a priest of the Most High God. This man is described as both a priest and a king. According to the meaning of his name, Melchizedek, he is the king of righteousness. And then according to his hometown of Salem, which is probably Jerusalem, Melchizedek is also called a king of peace, king of righteousness, king of peace, and priest of the most high God. Well, we don't hear about Melchizedek again until the one other place in the Old Testament where his name is mentioned momentarily, and that is in Psalm 110, which our passage for today quotes twice. Um, Psalm 110 was understood to be a prophecy about the Messiah. I'd love for you to go back on your own time and read the whole psalm. You'll see lots of kingly imagery. It's a prophecy about the Messiah being king of Israel and also priest mysteriously um, like Melchizedek, both king and priest. Well, in this passage, we hear that Melchizedek is bigger, better, greater than Aaron and his descendants, who, of course, served as the high priest in God's tabernacle and then later in his temple. As one who was from a non-Levitical lineage, our our passage points out that both Melchizedek and Jesus are therefore from a different kind of priestly order than the imperfect priests of the old sacrificial system. Because Melchizedek is better than Aaron, and because he prefigures Jesus, then therefore, as our argument goes for tonight, Jesus is also greater than Aaron and his descendants. Melchizedek, then, is a type a type that foreshadowed Jesus in his function as both Messiah or Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and as the great high priest who entered into the heavenly places to secure the forgiveness of sins because of the perfect offering of his own sinless self. There is truly no peace without righteousness, is there? And Jesus is the one who has brought us first righteousness, and then, consequently, peace. So Hebrews is so keen to show that no one but Jesus can justify us, no one but Jesus can mediate for us. Then why are we, like the first hearers of this letter to the Hebrews, so tempted to turn back to the old things? This is what the author of this letter urges. Um, He urges his hearers, them and us, don't do it. For them, don't keep offering sacrifices through the ineffective and superseded temple system. And for us and them, don't forego receiving the gift that has already been given in Jesus Christ in the way that you live out your daily life. We are so quick to turn to anything, anything but Jesus. Um, If in Christ we have the best offer, for salvation that we could ever find, then why do we constantly turn to other things and to other people to save us in the moment, to try to find solace or comfort, validation, a sense of identity? We are hooked, addicted even as a people, to anything that will keep Jesus at a distance. Even as Christians, I think we're guilty of this. We want to deny our deep and abiding need for him. We avoid realizing this need in any way that we can. This is what I think avoiding this need looks like. It might be um, that we crowd out Jesus from our morning by insisting, by, waking up, um, by insisting on waking up to a morning news show. Well, I just have to have my show in the morning and, and Jesus will come later. Or I have to have the most elaborate coffee ritual ever. Or um, on our way to work, we play music or the radio during our car time, our alone time, when maybe God could um, break through to us and speak to us, but we we turn him off by turning on the radio. Or we trust um, in our paychecks and we trust in our bank accounts, wonderful things, to be able to provide for us rather than seeking God in prayer to provide what we really need, even if it's not what we think we need. We seek advice when we're trying to make a big decision. We seek advice from anyone and everyone. And sometimes um, it's funny how you'll even seek out advice from your parents rather than from Jesus himself. Or maybe we offer up every second of every hour in our day to our handheld gods, the handheld gods of our pocket computers, as I like to call it. Um, it is such a diabolical thing. It can be a helpful tool, but an unruly master. The phone. There's an app that you can get apparently that will tell you how many minutes of every day you spend on your phone. And I haven't gotten it yet because I don't want to know yet. I don't want to see the ugly truth for what it is. We crowd God out of our free time by squandering away an evening of rest by binging on Netflix. Are you still watching? Not all of these behaviors are bad, of course, on their own, in and of themselves. But when we engage in them, instead of allowing Jesus to encounter us and save us on a daily basis, if we engage in them as a way of... um, of tampering down our need for him, of um, feeling of that need with something else, then these things can become diabolical. Maybe it is that we are calloused. Maybe we've become unresponsive um, to the good news and the, the marvel of the good news. I hate to say it, but as Christians, if you are a Christian and if you're not a Christian, then I'm really glad you're here. Um, but as Christians, too, we're so used to talking about Jesus and our salvation in him through our forgiveness of sins because of his death on the cross um, that we get deadened to the language even. We know about our justification by faith. We know about our need for repentance. We know of the glories of absolution. Do you hear about me talking about these spiritual wonders as if they're kind of laundry list? Maybe the truth of our salvation has lost its luster from us. Are you so used to the reality of being saved by grace through faith that you forget to marvel at the miracle and again, mea culpa, part of the problem lies with people like me who get up and use the same words to talk about the events of our justification. We are inoculated sometimes against the truth. Our, our words lose their meaning. They are in danger at times of becoming jargon, a shorthand that we use from one Christian to another. All the more reason, then, tonight, every night, all the time, to dig deeply into Scripture and allow the Word to remake and transform our words, to reveal to us the many sparkling facets of the ancient and glorious hope that we have as Christians. So two words, then, about our text for tonight. Two words here in Hebrews 7 about Jesus. Shed light on the truth of who he is and the truth of what he has done for us and what he continues to do for us. First, in verse 22, we hear that God's oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. I like this word, guarantor, because we don't use it all the time, right? So we're like, oh, what does that mean, guarantor? Well, this particular word, we have other words like it, a guarantee also used in in the New Testament. But this word is one of those words that's only found in this place in all of the New Testament, which is kind of cool if you're a word nerd. Um, So again, this guarantee, a guarantor, um, is a kind of surety is another word used for it. It's like a pledge. It's like bail that's paid as a promise that the freed one won't run away before trial. Uh, This guarantor, this surety is like the down payment put on a house, a promise that the rest of the amount will be paid in full one day. And so the very person of Jesus Christ is God's assurance. He will honor the terms of the new covenant that he has made with us in him. Because of Jesus' past work, we have God's promise for the future. When we see God face to face at the last day, at the end of this life, we will not pass into judgment, but we will pass into life. This is too good to be true. This is marvelous. Um, Freedom that we couldn't have hoped for based on our activity, based on our righteousness on our own in this life. This is the best offer we're going to get. This is amazing. So not only is Jesus our surety, our guarantor of what has been done in the past for us and what we can expect to hope for in the future and for all eternity, but also Jesus has a very real role today in our present salvation whether his role is going to um, be to release us from the temptation to sin or to strengthen us in the midst of the temptation or to give us hope even when all else seems lost, when we're suffering in a way that we just can't bear, when the pain is too much. Or maybe he brings meaning. Maybe he saves us today by bringing meaning into the dullness of our daily lives, giving us something to live for, something to work for, something to love for. Well, Jesus, again, crucified but risen on the third day, raised up and there seated at the right hand of the Father. He gives us an assurance not just for the future, but also for the present. Um, Again, this reality of Jesus' ongoing um, aspect of our salvation is assured, we see it in Scripture, when the first Christian martyr in Acts, um, by the name of Stephen, he was was being stoned to death. And he looked up and he saw a vision of the reality of what's going on at all times, which is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is seated on our behalf. Um, This is an unseen reality um, that has an incredible benefit for us as Christians in this very moment right now. So that's the first thing, that Jesus is our surety, our guarantee, our guarantor of the future based on the past. And he also has this present reality, this unseen reality that has a present effect. And this is encompassed by a word found in verse 25, um, that Jesus always lives to make intercession, that's the word, to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Well, what does this mean? This does not mean that Jesus is constantly re-offering himself to God in heaven as a sacrifice. No, that would be a bad thing. Um, No, he always lives, is what the text says. He always lives, which emphasizes the fact that he was raised from the dead, never to die again. He has the power of an indestructible life. As Jesus himself says in Revelation 1, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Jesus always lives, and for that reason, he is our eternal high priest. His death on the cross was once and for all. There's nothing that he or anyone else can do to add to the marvel of what he has already done for us. Because he now lives then, he retains this office of great high priest. He will always be the great high priest. He is the last and the only great high priest. No one else will ever hold that job or that title or that office. And so it is in this role now as great high priest that Jesus lives on to intercede for us, seated at the right hand of the Father. Has anyone ever prayed for you in such a powerful way that you felt understood and supported? They seem to have known you better than you thought they did. And, um, and you just feel encouraged and strengthened when you pray with them. I hope you've had this experience. Um, If you haven't had this experience, I'd encourage you to seek it out. And you can seek it out by um, making an appointment to go to Advent House, which is our prayer house. Um, You'll have a whole team of people circle around you and pray for you, and you will feel so encouraged and strengthened. Um, Well, it turns out that in Jesus Christ we have the best prayer partner in all of human history, the best prayer team ever, a team of one, praying for us constantly. Jesus has our back. Jesus thinks of us, He remembers us all the time. He remembers us in the presence of God the Father. Those earthly high priests, again, that um, don't hold a candle to who Jesus is and what He does, Aaron and his, and his successors wore special garments in the service of the, of the temple in Jerusalem and the tabernacle before that, and their garments um, with an ephod contained special stones. I don't think of clothes containing stones, but these were big stones, it sounds like, that were set into these garments. And there were two kinds of stones. There were the stones that were set in the shoulder pieces. These must have been like, I've heard that they were six-sided, which would be really cool. I don't know how that's possible, but six-sided. They had six names on each stone, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So he wore these stones of remembrance before the Lord on his two shoulders. And then the high priest also in that same garment had um, a a rainbow of semi-precious stones. And they were put into the breastplate of the ephod, the priestly garment, in rows, rows of um, four and three. How very appropriate and very fitting and very... um, I always find 12 to be reassuring. You know, 4 and 3, you can just rely on it mathematically. So 4 and 3 built into the, breast, the breastplate. And those um, 12 names, of again, one on each stone, were written there into the very garment that the high priest wore when he went into the presence of the Lord God Almighty. One commentator writes about this phenomenon. Thus the people of God were carried by name into the divine presence, supported, as it were, in their weakness on the strong shoulders of their high priest, and bound closely to his loving and compassionate heart. Their high priest was their remembrancer. I love that. Well, you might have seen my daughter. My daughter is of an age where she talks, she's beginning to talk. As my parents always said about the four of us children, it talks when we would start to talk. Um, and it's amazing to see her personality come out through the things she says and the things that are in her tiny and very active brain. So she talks right now with these isolated words. If you recall, toddlers do that, words first, and maybe staccato sentences. Um, and they're meant to reference a whole paragraph that's going on in her head. Um, they say in the nursery that she talks a lot and that they're like, well, her mama talks a lot, so she's going to talk a lot too, which is very sweet of them to say. Well, it's very generous um, One of her new additions Even just this week Is that she'll go Help, help It's the most pitiful Sarah Help, help mama Help um, She's got a southern accent already Help, help, help um, And help could mean any myriad of things Help means Help, I got stuck under the, underneath this chair And I'm in pain Help means um, Help me put on the baby doll's clothes Because I don't know how to do it Help means um, I need some food, but I won't tell you what kind of food, so you've got to throw 12 different kinds of food at me to figure out what kind of food I mean. Help means I can't reach your cell phone on the table where you put it just out of my reach, but I want you to help me to get it, even though if I thought about it for a minute, I'd realize you won't help me get it. Help, 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 help. Everything is help. And I love it. I I love that she's reaching out. I appreciate her awareness of her all-pervasive need. Jesus knew what he was talking about, didn't he, when he said that unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That feels like a hard word, and it's actually, though, an invitation. The need is there all the time. Our need is there all the time. Small children like Althea know their need. She is, has no delusions about her need. <laughs> but we've gotten too old, haven't we? we delude ourselves into thinking that we don't need Jesus' help at every moment of every day. And when we do that, we operate like functional pagans or at best, agnostics, thinking that God has set us up and that he wants us to take it from here. Or that he is that, um, that overused image of a benevolent watchmaker who sets the universe in motion. Well, maybe Jesus is the Christian version. He sets us up as Christians and then he wants us to take it from here. He'll come in for a little tune-up and then he'll back right out and let us let us um, work it out on our own. This is not the way God is. He delights in coming to help us in our time of need because that is a point of relationship, a place of closeness, of um, intimacy between us and him. That's part of the ongoing nature of our relationship with him. He delights to save us in every hour, every moment of every day. Um, Jesus remembers us even when we forget him and even when we forget our need. Again, There is an open door of the kingdom of heaven waiting for us. We've already stepped through and we have our eternal salvation, but there's blessing, great blessing in this life in that awareness of need and that calling out to Jesus Christ for help in that hour of need, in that moment of need. Jesus is our great high priest. He remembers us day and night before the throne of God And so because he's praying for us right now, he's praying for us right now while we're worshiping him, isn't that marvelous? Why don't we finish and close by turning and praying to him? Let us pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You remember us even when we forget you. And so we ask, open our eyes to see our constant need for you through every moment of every hour of every day And then, as we call upon you, would you lavish your love upon us through your response to our need for help? We also ask that you would renew our faith in your response, that you will respond. Cause also the reality of our great salvation in you to be shiny and new, now, today, and every day for the rest of our lives. In your name we ask. Amen.